Amen, everybody. Amen. We want to thank our worship team for that powerful, powerful worship on this morning. There is nothing that gets us going. There's nothing that helps better connect us and tether us to that relationship with God before the preaching of the word than praise and worship. We're going to have our word on this morning, and we look forward to that. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we are so thankful and grateful to you for this opportunity to uh, celebrate your word, Father God, and celebrate who you are. We thank you for this time, Father, to share in your word what you have put on my heart, dear God, to incite, to encourage, to challenge we, your people, to do the things that you would have us to do, to bring glory and honor and praise to your great name. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When asked about the personal cost of driving himself and his teammates to the top of the national basketball world, Michael Jordan said, winning has a price. Yet losing may have revealed Jordan's competitive drive like winning never could. As chronicled in Jason Heher's 2020 documentary, The Last Dance, by 1993, Jordan had pushed himself and his Chicago Bull teammates to three straight National Basketball Association championships. Then Jordan took a sudden break from basketball following the death of his father, and after nearly two years, he felt the urge to play again and return to the National Basketball Association in the spring of 1995. But Jordan's comeback to the Bulls that year ended with a playoff series loss to Orlando. What happened immediately after that reveals the insatiable drive to win. Jordan, always a workout warrior, normally recuperated following each NBA season. The night the Bulls lost to Orlando, Jordan's personal trainer, Tim Glover, called Mike to say, let me know when you want me to see you. Grover says that Jordan, fresh off his first NBA defeat in five years, said, I'll see you tomorrow. Jordan felt compelled to win. Uh, that next season, he willed his Bulls team to a new record for wins during the regular season and a fourth NBA championship, which, could be which would be followed by two more titles. Said a Bulls teammate about Jordan's drive to win, back-to-back -back crown, you could tell he was on a mission. What mission are you on? Is it to have more power? Is it to have influence or fame? To make lots of money and to, have, to live comfortably and not to have any difficulties or pain? Maybe your mission is to retire at the age of 55, or recognition or approval, to be loved, to travel to the world, or to be the best at whatever you wish to do. All of these are good aspirations, whether realistic or not, but there is one mission that transcends and supersedes all of them. A mission that every Christ follower is to be on, and that is the Missio Dei, 
the missio day, the mission of or the sending of God. God has always been on a mission for the worldwide worship of himself and the God-man Jesus Christ. He does so by seeking and saving sinful, undeserving mankind from his coming wrath and their pending eternal damnation. The apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10, he gives us a glimpse of glory when he says that he saw a multitude that no one could number. People from every nation, every tribe, every language, and every tongue standing before the throne of God and the Lamb and giving a great shout out to God for the salvation that belongs to God who sits on the throne and to his Lamb. Therefore, mission then is any activity that the church, the body of Christ engages in through the love of Christ for the purpose of making Christ known to every people everywhere that they may worship God forever. You see, God is more concerned for his mission than for your mission. That is, if your mission is not his mission. Because your mission is temporal, it's selfish-based, whereas God's mission is eternal. You say, God is selfish. Yes, he is. But he is God. So the question is, what is it that should compel you to live on mission for God? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul teaches us the one thing that characterized his life and ministry. This one thing that became the core motivation and the driving force for all that he did. And by extension, this one thing should characterize your life in ministry and my life in ministry. This same one thing is to become the core motivation and the driving force behind all that you and I do. This one thing is love. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, these words, reading from the NIV. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. With this idea, this, this, uh, with this idea, I want to use this as a 75 message today, compelled by the love of Christ to live on mission for God. Compelled by the love of Christ to live on mission to God. Let us see how this operation of Christ's love compels us to live on a mission for God. The first observation from our text is that Christ's love for you compels you to live on mission for God. That's right. Christ's love for you compels you to live on mission for God. He says in verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. What the world calls today, calls love today, is basically mere emotion or is conditionally based. Uh, I've seen the definition that defines love as a feeling that you feel when you feel a feeling that you have never felt before. Uh, feel good emotions of romance or marriage or sex or, and not necessarily in that order. But however, the love that Paul is referring to here is agape. It is essential to the nature of God and it finds its fulfillment in who God is and all that God does. 
The writer John in his first epistle, 1 John 14, says, God is love. Agape then is that unconditional, loyal love of God. It is the act of the will, charity, goodwill, compassion that seeks the highest good of its object. Most notably, though, God's love includes sacrifice. And in fact, God's love and sacrifice cannot be separated. They're like two different sides of the same coin. So in other words, God's version of compelling love has involved in it Christ's love and his sacrifice, his death on Calvary's cross. You know it to be the greatest, uh, the gospel in a nutshell, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, his motivation, that he gave his only begotten son, the sacrifice, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. In other words, that who all believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Even more so, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul says then that if we could ever get our head around the love of Christ that he has for us, we would have no problem living on mission with God. In fact, that's the purpose of his prayer that he prayed for all believers, particularly at Ephesus there, by the extension believers all today. Ephesians 3, 6, verses 16 to 19 reads like as follows. That according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And here's why. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that is being rooted and grounded in love. That, may, that you may be, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth is the, of the love of, of the, the knowledge, to know the love of God, love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge that it may be filled with all the fullness of God. What would this world look like if all the saints today could comprehend the magnitude of Christ's love for them? He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a perfect life. He died for you. He paid the penalty of sin that you and I owed. He reconciled you and I to God, and we now have eternal life through our trust in him. And now we are sons and daughters of God, and we have been set free from the power of sin and death. Let Christ's love for you compel you to live on mission for God, with God. And if that's not enough, then... The second reason is Christ's love for you, for all people, compels you to live on mission for God. The B part of verse 14, Paul says, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Today, the earth's population is estimated to be about 7.8 billion people. And God loves each and every one of them the same. God is no respecter of persons. And the scripture also declares in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
You see, the apostle Paul resolved in his mind and became determined that Christ died on Calvary's cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all mankind, for people everywhere. Why? Because this world is suffering from the effects of another pandemic called sin. It, it is a way, it is more devastating than COVID-19 could ever be. Uh, uh, no one is exempt for it, and every person has been infected. Social distancing will not help. Wearing masks will not hurt, help. Lockdowns will not help. Drinking bleach definitely won't help. We know the source of this sin problem we have, but the vaccine is not man-made. Paul tells us the source of this sin problem in Romans chapter 5, verses 12, 15, and 18. He says these words, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of God, that is the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You see, Jesus Christ is God's vaccine. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And in John 3.17, John writes, Christ says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, Christ did not come into the world to bring death. Mankind was already dead because of sin. But through Christ's death on Calvary's cross, he brings eternal life uh, through his death, and he made all mankind save above. But only those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, in his finished work on Calvary's cross, will be saved. There is not a person on this earth that can stand before the almighty God and say, you don't love me. Because God showed us how much he loves all mankind by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on Calvary's cross for our sin. So if Christ's love for you and Christ's love for all people are not good enough reasons for you to live on mission for God, then lastly, Christ's love at work in you can change you so that you can live on mission with God. That's right. His love is at work in you and it can change you so that you can live on mission for God. Verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The greatest change that God wants to make in your life and in my life so that he can use us for his glory is to rid you and I of selfishness. He says in the text that we may, not we may no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Why? Because selfishness truly is the mother of all sins. And it is common to each and every one of us. It is defined as concerned excessively or exclusively with oneself. Seeking and concentrating on one's own advantage. 
pleasure or well-being without regard to others. The problem is, is that human beings are very selfish by nature. We are egocentric. When a baby is born, the doctor normally gives them a tap on their bottom uh, in order to make sure that they're breathing. The baby starts to cry. What does that cry mean? It means that the baby is concerned about having its own needs met. It needs to be washed. It needs to be clothed or fed or comforted. It needs to be loved. That first cry means feed me. I'm hungry. Clothe me. I'm cold. Love me. I'm scared. Selfishness then keeps us from loving God and loving others as we are called as believers to do. But we are, all, we are called to follow in Jesus Christ's footsteps, to live our lives as he lived his life, overcoming sin through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that has been given to us. We are not meant to be trapped by our human tendencies with no way out. Luke recalls in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, when Christ says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Following in Jesus' footsteps is only attainable if we decide to give up living for ourselves and live completely for God's will and therefore he can use us to do his will. If you allow Christ, it will, his love for you will change your behavior. It will change your conduct through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 5, 16, that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So to rid us, rid our lives of selfishness, we must live in complete dependence on the Holy Spirit and allow him to produce the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, and not under the flesh, and we can therefore live to glorify God. I love Paul's testimony in Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, that kind of ties it all together of this new life in Christ. He says, for verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is telling us that God's holy law required death for sinners, but Jesus Christ served as our substitute. He bore God's wrath and died in our place that we might live for God. So we cannot satisfy our own selfish desires. Paul is telling us that your identity in Christ, being united with him both in his death and resurrection, is the key to living the victorious Christian life. The life that God wants you to live. Why? Because Christ, Paul says, lives in you. How? By faith. That faith is both visible and that faith is also verbal. To live for Christ means that our whole perspective changes. It means that we now view everything differently. We should see others, we should see Christ, and also see ourselves 
the way God sees us. And he catalogs these things in verses 16 down through verse 21. Verse 16 says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Paul is simply saying that we are not to evaluate, discriminate, show partiality to others based on mere physical appearances like age, gender, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. But sadly, the opposite of this principle has been and has been played out in the ugly history of our country. Scripture teaches that all human beings have been created in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect. We ought to see others based on their eternal destinies. There are only two. Those who have been given eternal life through placing their faith in Jesus Christ, they have eternal life. And then there are those who are faced with eternal death apart from putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16b says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, no, we, we do so no longer. We ought to see Christ differently as well. Do you realize that last year in 20, August 2020, a survey by Ligonier Ministries found that 52% of the U.S. adults say that they believe that Jesus Christ is not God. A belief that contradicts traditional teachings of the Bible through the Christian church which state that Jesus Christ was both God and man. Nearly one-third of evangelicals in the survey agreed that Jesus Christ isn't God, compared to 65% who said Jesus Christ is the first and greatest being created by God. Hmm. Mere information about Jesus Christ cannot transform a person from self-centeredness to selfless, selfish, selflessness. Only a conversion could affect that. It is what, Paul, what, what, what God had done for Paul and God also wants to do in your life. You see, Jesus Christ is no mere crucified uh, first century Jewish man. Rather, he is the risen Savior, the King who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, who presently intercedes for us and is coming back one day for his own. Verse 17 says, now on, verse, now on should we see others differently and see Christ differently. But verse 17 says, we ought to see ourselves differently. We ought to see ourselves at, at the way God sees us. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. We ought to see ourselves through God's eyes. Salvation changes us completely. The Christian life is a new creation with new values, new desires, new perspective. And you have been born again of an imperishable seed. And we share in God's divine nature. God has brought about a spiritual transformation inside of us. And it is tied to our identity in Christ. And it's tied to our new birth. So therefore, we are no longer the old man because the new has come. And the old has passed away. Therefore, you are called to live in accordance with our new identity in Christ. And that is to live on mission for God. Verse 18 and verse 19 carry this same idea forward from the standpoint of us embracing what God has done for us. Uh, these divine imperatives. Paul says, all this is from God. 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Wow, check that out. When, God, when, we, when we look at what God has done for you in Christ, it ought to humble you because he did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. You and I have had nothing to do with what the transformation that's taking place in our lives. In other words, God desires that we just let it happen because we submit to his will to live the way God has transformed us to live. God reconciled us to himself. Normally, the person in the wrong goes to the person who was wrong to say, hey, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But God took, took the initiative to come to you and I and say, I forgive you through my son, Jesus Christ. God also gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18, every believer in the body of Christ has a mission, the same mission, and that is God's mission, to tell others of the good news of Jesus Christ that God forgives sins. You may not be involved in a specific ministry through your local church, and you should be, but God has given you a ministry to fulfill in his universal church. And that is his mission. Paul says, verse 20, continue, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. And he says further, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on, behalf, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul says we have a new job description now. We are no more sinners now, but we are God's ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors. And we are an officially designated representative who is authorized to speak in a foreign land on behalf of the country that sent them. We understand that we are citizens of heaven and this world is not our home. So therefore, it is our job here is to speak as ambassadors for Christ. We are to be faithful to the one who has sent us. Human rebellion is the root cause of our eternal conflict with God. In other words, mankind is at war with an almighty God. It's a losing battle. There is no way possible for you and I to have won and win this battle. Now, typically in a war, the weaker army or the weaker individual raises a white flag signaling that I surrender. I give up. You win. But look at the foolishness of God that is wiser than man, 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. instead of waiting for mankind to raise a white flag, the almighty God chose to raise his son on the cross and offer peace to you and I. That's what he's done. Jesus Christ is our peace. He makes, God says, Paul says, God makes his appeal through us in verse 20 as ambassadors for Christ. We are to share the message of reconciliation, urging all sinners to be reconciled to God because through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, he is not counting their sins, their trespasses against himself, against them. There is no more glorious message to be proclaimed than God forgives sin. You see, Jesus Christ, he is not coming down from heaven to do the witnessing directly. Instead, he has committed to you and I, his people, to do the message, to carry the message forth ourselves. 
Our job is as ambassadors to carry out God's mission and proclaim his message to the world. Brothers and sisters, God's mission is the only mission that matters. Therefore, then be compelled by the love of Christ to live on mission for God. His love for you, his love for all people, and how his love is at work in changing you so that you can live on mission to God, with God. Be reconciled to God and fulfill the duty he's called us to do. Amen. Let us pray. Well, Father God, we are so grateful and kind again to thank you for what you have done for us and your son, Jesus Christ. You didn't save us, Father God, to sit and soak in sour, but you saved us, dear God, to be actively involved and intimately engaged in your mission, carrying the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. Give us the strength we need, Father God, the wisdom we need, Father God, and the courage that we need to be your people involved in your mission for your worldwide glory of you and Jesus Christ. When we fall short, dear God, may your Holy Spirit challenge us to move forward to be all you have us to be. We thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Reverend Mark Sloan, for that powerful, powerful message compelled by the love of Christ to live on mission with God. You know, one of the most important steps in living on mission with God is accepting his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen, before we do anything else, the Spirit of God is leading me to pray the sinner's prayer for anyone who heard that message and wants to give their life to Jesus Christ. Bow with me as we pray this prayer because we believe that if you pray this prayer with us, if you pray the sinner's prayer with us. We believe that your prayer is heard and that you are accepted by faith. And so bow your heads with me as we pray this sinner's prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now listen, we believe that if you prayed that prayer with us, we believe that if you recited, if you repeated that prayer with us, that your faith has been accepted by Jesus Christ and that you have entered into a relationship with him. Now, we know you want to know more, and if you want to know more about how to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please go to our website, goodhope.org, and there is a message under the tab, I want to excite, accept Jesus Christ. There is a tab there. Click on that tab, and there's a message waiting for you from our senior pastor, Dr. D.Z. Cofield. Listen, God is doing something amazing in my life, and I know he is doing something wonderful and amazing in yours. And remember, as long as you keep your hand in God's hand, he'll make sure that every blessing and every need is met. We love you. Good Hope, have a great week. I hope church have a great week, and we'll see you here on next Sunday. God bless and take care.